arms fading. He sees you in your sleep. He knows if you've been bad or good, pundit. You better be good for goodness. Hi, hi there. We've um, we've got a new oven. Oh, that's exciting. So, um, and a new, <laughs> what, and... what an opening line! I just what an opening open. line! Just, just play along. Just play oh, along. Steve, is that a picture of your? Yeah. Set up today. Completely yep. unnecessary. That is what you would call cobbled together, isn't it? That's even more cobbled together. There's books, well, there's how... tables, there's manuals. That's how I get the right, the right height and depth of field yes. to, to provide, to provide yeah. this glorious it's, it's uh, Christmas Eve backdrop. Yeah. Books on <laughs> Star Wars, David Copperfield. Yeah, nice. Which nice. David Copperfield? There's no David Copperfield in there, is Oh, there? sorry, it's... Uh, it's a, it's it's a, a magic Bible. Book. It's David it's a... Copperfield. Sorry. Yeah, I missed, got that wrong. Got that wrong. And uh, which microphone? Interesting. Interesting. Good that... so you're, you're, you're trying to improve yourself, Stephen. Excellent. Excellent. Chinch, Chinch, is, Chinch having a battle with um, Nikki went down tremendously with our audience. Uh... It wasn't a battle. It wasn't a battle. It was me being forceful and Nikki doing as she's damn well told. I think that's how it came across, Stephen. No. It, no, it really wasn't. No, 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 no that's not really. Across, uh, oh, what do you mean it went down? What did you do with it? You didn't put it out there for public consumption. Please tell me. Our audience has a better idea now, Chinch, about the life of a former footballer, and that oh. it's not—it's not quite all dream team and footballers' wives as they once suspected. <laughs> because we all thought that was real. Yeah, it's more Lambrusco than Don Perignon, isn't it? It really is. Oh, dear. You're no Carl Fletcher, that's for sure. Certainly not. I don't want to be. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, tier three, Stephen Wyeth, tier three, and Andy Hinchcliffe, tears of a clown. The food is, does anybody have, bearing in mind so many people that are listening to this, because I'm sure they're all incredibly middle class, uh, bought their Christmas lunch for 10 or 15. Does anybody have a Christmas lunch that they'd like to tell us about that would make all those people really jealous because they'd be able to have it in the company of other human beings? We are, in theory, having my parents over, but uh, not... It's, it's, it's not necessarily concrete yet because obviously the, the rules have changed. But we, we currently are on for some turkey, some beef, and Kate's decided to make a nut roast as well, even though there will be a maximum of five adults, which means that currently I am being tasked with, eat, with eating <laughs> like three quarters of a joint of food, which even for Christmas lunch is a, is a, is a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's no need for the vegetarian option, is there? Let's be honest. I wouldn't have thought so. It's um, I, it, it, I don't know. I can't explain it. She just determined to make a nut roast. Why make a nut roast unless you absolutely have to for somebody? You wouldn't make it by choice, would you? No one's going to eat it. It's not it's stuffing, is it? It's not stuffing, is it? There will also be stuffing. Oh, there also. It's not the stuffing, is it? It is actually no, a separate meal, which stuffing. is tell her it's nonsensical. You saw how I handled Nikki when she got a bit, uh, you know, a bit, bit leery. So if Kate, you know, we want me to bring her down a peg or two on the nut roast situation, just uh, just give my number and I'll I'll sort the situation out. Thank you. Do I want to farm out my my kind of the, the delicate domestic balance of my life to Chinch? No. Is she fist of oh, fury nice. when she gets angry? Is she is she can she get quite nasty? Will she call me names? No, she's 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 a very kind of calm and composed woman, but she will just surgically dissect your personality and life. All <laughs> oh, right, or, or right just, okay. just ignore yeah. the call, which is probably more likely. And um, the football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? What we're actually broadcasting today? You told me it was a Zoom Christmas party. I've got my bottle of port. I've got the twiglets. Why am I dressed as a sexy elf? It's the Christmas party, isn't it? <laughs> 
we're talking about something serious, are yeah. we? Well, how about this then for you, Chinch? We have a little seasonal two-parter for you. Little oh, because they'll brilliant. be shorter and we've all got better things to be doing, so that makes sense. And also because we all know the smaller the gift, the better at Christmas. So getting two from us will surely therefore be the best of your haul uh, come Christmas Day. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be considering the value of nostalgia and whether it's true or not that we, regardless of age, tend to hark after the football of yesteryear. We'll also try and evaluate whether indeed it was so much better when we or you indeed were younger. That is is to come you can get in touch with the podcast via setpiece menu at gmail.com find us on twitter facebook and our youtube channel uh, the aforementioned deficiency has reduced our correspondence section to just a couple of items on today's show firstly an apology to robbie wells who i incorrectly identified as our bear correspondent at least once that is of course robbie harms robbie wells emailed to alert us to the fact saying i believe you have conflated two robbies very easily done i am often mistaken for robbie fowler robbie williams and margot robbie so sorry from me to both robbies uh, there appears to be an abundance um, of robbies next to john wood we have just two of those uh, this is the one in huntington beach saying this dear noel liam Giggsy, and bonehead my cousin loves your show <laughs> That's and the best, yeah. That's the best, yeah. Is that really the best, That's yeah? That's the best, yeah. Yeah, I like that. My yeah. cousin loves your show and lives in Hell, Michigan. Uh, he wants to become a sponsor of Set Piece Menu. Have Get the rights in. for ice suppliers been sold yet? Keep up the great work. Yours sincerely, John Woods. I'm just looking down my spreadsheet. Uh, territorial North America ice supplies. It's currently unchecked. Um, Excellent. So, uh, so your cousin, John, please get in touch. We do have ice suppliers in other areas, yes, so it is that... a competitive field. But it's it's great to know that the North American ice market, although I, I believe that the North American ice market has been saturated at the moment by God. Uh, so maybe <laughs> <laughs> not a great business. But the um, it's great to know that that's becoming a competitive tender, I think. To be honest, Richard Arnold and Ed Wood would get loads of credit for this, but it, it's a piece of piss. It's really quite easy, isn't it? Just, you know, make an appeal on a podcast. So uh, we've got Allen Keys. We tick that box, have we? And now Ice. The Mina hardware section is covered by Jordan. I think right. that we, we, can, yeah. we can probably give them territorial rights to, okay. to okay. the Gulf of North Africa as well. I think that's fine. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so make sure that you do find your niche and then get in touch with an opportunity to sponsor us, which, which frankly has become a mention in an email, but still value, value. Uh, and finally, from Gabriel Radus, who chimes in from a position of great authority on the debate surrounding the modern day suitability of Franco-Belgian comic books. There's a sentence that you wouldn't necessarily expect mm -hmm. on a football podcast. Dear Tintin, Captain Haddock, Professor Calculus and Bianca Castiafore. Or is it Cast Cast Castiafore, would you say, Rory, with your knowledge of Italian? I wouldn't say anything, just Tintin's nonsense. <laughs> okay. Uh, SBM 209 did not disappoint. Uh, SBMs rarely, if ever, do, says Gabriel. In fact, there was greater cause for delight this time around as Hugh began his formal introduction into the week's topic of discussion. I realised that he was, in fact, referencing my university dissertation subject, Tintin and Asterix, not the plight of the overlapping centre-backs. On the subject of cancel culture... Tintin Okongo is indeed still purchasable. A cursory glance at Amazon sees it priced at circa £65, but there have been chunks of that book taken out and apologised for in its prelude, as much due to the entirely unnecessary killing spree that Tintin goes on when out hunting as the appalling depiction of the Congolese both physically and mentally. On a second and far more random note, Durham's university radio station, Purple Radio, is more than happy to join the Middle Eastern Maintenance Magazine, if that is what you're looking for as part of your global portfolio. Keep up the great work. That's from Gabriel. Correspondence and any uh, possible offers of uh, uh, sponsorship to setbespenu at gmail.com. 
So then, what was football like when you were younger? Was it better? And when was that? Because I'll guarantee you the generation that preceded you thought that that wasn't as good as it used to be either. What is it that makes us so nostalgic for prior eras? It's not just something that affects, shall we say, uh, to massively overgeneralize old people, even if they do still wish for the days of cigarette smoking midfielders and only two players on any team who wore shorts in size large, Cody Schultz emails this. Dear Stan, Kyle, Kenny and Cartman, I wanted to see if you all held a belief that I feel has been creeping up over the past few years, that there is a drop in the total level of top quality teams and footballers in general in the last few years or so. Looking back over the last decade of football, you had teams like Pep's Barca, Mourinho's Madrid, Heinkes is, it's very difficult to to do the possessive on Heinkes, Heinkes is Bayern, Ferguson's United, Allegri's Juve that could strike fear into any team that played against them and indeed in each other. Players such as Iniesta, Xavi, Dani Alves, Marcelo, Modric, Bale, Ribéry, Robin, Schweinsteiger, Lahm, Rooney, Scholes, Giggs, this is an exhaustive list, Perlo, Vidal, Tevez, Pogba, etc. And of course, Messi and Ronaldo, with etc. being the most fearsome of those players. These and the other teams were truly scary to play against because of these players and how successful the teams were both domestically and in Europe. And there were always a handful of teams that had a chance at European glory. However, over the last few years, says Cody, especially this year, it seems there are only one or two teams that seem like they are realistically capable of winning the Champions League. Curious as to your thoughts, are the levels of the players dropping off a bit? Is it the team's tactics that tried to shift the focus away from individuals a factor? Will we ever have a new crop of truly outstanding world-class players that can stand above the other great players out there? Respectfully, Cody from Georgia, USA. Yes, even Cody, who I'm going to assume, as he's called Cody, that he is and will permanently be between the ages of 17 and 19, is harking back to a time long ago, those years <laughs> of the 2010s. How can we genuinely assess the relative value of footballing generations without being clouded by nostalgia? Or does nostalgia play enough of a legitimate part in that assessment that we can lean in, put on our rose-tinted spectacles and dream of the days when players who were losing their hair could only find comfort in a comb-over? So on today's first part of the two-parter, we will talk about players. Next week, we will consider the more ethereal and slightly intangible of feelings. Uh, but before feelings, something tangible and players. Rory, this is your suggestion. So jumping off the back of Cody's point, uh, would you say that nostalgia means that we all think back to players of a bygone era and think they're way better than they are now? I think there's kind of two things. So one is that... With, within like a relative within within a, a relatively short era, I think it is possible that you is well not even possible, but it's obvious and natural that you end up with with peaks and troughs. And I I think Cody's probably quite right to say that between say twenty ten and twenty fifteen, you had more elite players and teams at their absolute peak than you have had between twenty fifteen and twenty twenty. I think that's probably about right. This season's weird. We can't read too much into this season. But you had peak Messi, peak Ronaldo. You had Real, Barca, Bayern. Early on in, the, in that sort of in 2010, 2011, you had kind of a, a Manchester United that was still a kind of relevant force. Um, it does feel as though th that kind of lustrum, that five-year spell, was stronger than the subsequent five-year spell. And I, th I think that's unavoidable because we're basically looking at more or less, you know, teams that are built around the same players, teams that are doing the same things, teams that have the same kind of generations at their hearts. And those generations are getting older. So Messi now is not as good as Messi 10 years ago. That's that's not offensive to Messi to say that. Ditto Ronaldo. This Bayern team is amazing, but probably man for man, and this is something that Arsene Wenger said a few weeks ago, probably isn't as good as the, as the Bayern team that had peak Ribéry, peak Robin. 
So I don't think it's nostalgic necessarily to look back five, six, seven, ten years ago and say teams overall then were a little bit stronger. But the the kind of the danger of nostalgia struck me during the morning for Maradona, really, that that, that oh, as amazing as Maradona was, as as kind of as much as he meant to a lot of people and as natural as all of that might be, and as, as correct as all that might be, I, I do think when we when we look back, there is a tendency for every generation basically to say the players who I remember most fondly from my childhood were the best players. And the modern players, for whatever reason it might be, cannot compare. And it, that's not to say that Maradona wouldn't be brilliant in the modern day. It's not to say that Messi wouldn't be brilliant in the, in the era in which Maradona played. I think everyone of that level of talent would cope. But I suspect what the knock-on effect is that we maybe, we maybe lose sight of just how good your kind of basic, average, bog-standard, Hinchcliffe-level player is now. Why can't you just say basic and bog-standard? Why don't you just leave it at that? Because I think people like... people Why like me into the to mire? Ha- to have an, have an idea of what sort of standard we're playing, we're, we're talking about. Was I, I, was I bog-standard? You were a bog-standard elite international class footballer. <laughs> That sentence doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense. It's a point of reference. International athlete and and tremendous superstar. Make any sense? Don't be so precious. You're a barometer, Chinch. Just accept it. Nicky, are there any other podcasts that I can do? I'm losing faith in this one. I really am. You are a footballing weather vane. You are a weather vane. The the footballing winds weather me. They did. They and did. you are particularly oh. vain, that's for sure. No, but you know what I mean? I think, I think that, the, 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 that we talk about players like Maradona and Messi and we have these sort of the, these futile debates that aren't really meant to be conclu- concluded. There's not meant to be a conclusion to the who is the best player of all time debate. Just, otherwise, it's no fun. It, the, the whole point of that debate is that it's a debate. But I think within that, we do kind of lose sight of... Oh, progress is quite, isn't quite the right word, but the fact that the game has developed to such an extent that you now get players now who we think of as being a little bit ropey 20 years ago would have been genuine superstars in the same way as if Chinch had played and this isn't to take the piss out of me again but if Chinch had played in the 70s he would have been seen as kind of this sort of technical wizard I'd have been nine years old that'd have been some story wouldn't it it would have been extraordinary but Whereas in the, when he played in the in the in the 90s, he was he was obviously elite class, but he wasn't kind of abnormal in the in the same way as I'm guessing if Chinch played now, he maybe wouldn't be kind of considered the cutting edge of fullbacks. He would have to play a different game. He is and 51 we, in his defense. You're not mate, you're not helping this already quite complicated complicated <laughs> argument. He yeah. did. That, that's why I'm keeping quiet here and just letting you talk. You often appeared 51 when you were in defence uh, Can we just, can we get, Rory, get back onto the point, the very good point you were making. Well, look, I, really, I do agree with Rory that this conversation about comparing players from different eras is, is so awkward because of the, the advances in sports science, the, the advances in, in fitness, the speed at which the game is played. I'm slightly concerned that Cody is introducing a new phenomenon to what is already a, a difficult debating point. If you're starting to compare players within their own era, or you're starting to hark back five years and suggesting there's been a drop-off in standard, because what you're doing is reflecting upon dominant teams from five years ago that we've had the opportunity to reflect on how that all came together for them. And 
how they reach that level of superiority, whether that's domestically or within the Champions League. And drawing that line to now, where we haven't yet been able to judge a team over a prolonged period of time because you might say well look look at the current Liverpool if they go on and win the Premier League for two or three seasons running if they add another Champions League during that spell we'll look at Mane, Salah, Firmino as being one of the great all-time front threes in European football. Bayern Munich have one of the most outstanding number nines of all time currently operating for them and, and Robert Lewandowski, despite the numbers that he continuously puts up both in Europe and the Bundesliga, seems to be at times overlooked. I know he's just you know just been named FIFA World Player of the Year, but he was he should have been a shoe in for the Ballon d'Or, which just inexplicably got cancelled because it wasn't deemed that Messi or Ronaldo had done enough during the course of this calendar year for us to have a, a sensible conversation about which one of them was going to win it. So yes, we had, a, we had a spell five years ago where there were a lot of elite teams because of their elite players dominating their divisions. But we weren't satisfied with that situation. So we shouldn't necessarily be longing nostalgically for, for 2015 when actually what has happened is that other clubs have either closed the gap or overtaken and have taken advantage of the current circumstances which we find ourselves in to do that. Yeah, and to an extent, the it's it's unavoidable if you think about the teams that have dominated that that dominated that those first five years of this decade, they've dropped off because that's what always happens. There's a yin, there's a yin, and there's a yang. You can't. No team really has ever. Man United domestically did it, but no team really has ever kind of transitioned between eras of absolute greatness without a bit of a, a bump in the road. So it's it's a slightly harsh comparison. I think I I think he's right that if you look at the at the the kind of marketplace, I guess, now of teams compared to where we were in 2013, when you when you still had you know, Tito Villanova's Barca and Ancelotti's Real Madrid and Heinz's Bayern, and we hadn't yet realised that David Moyes was the harbinger of doom for Manchester United and all that stuff. It did feel as though more of the elite teams were better then than they are now. But as Steve quite rightly says, you don't know whether maybe the the sort of the the rising crop of elite teams that we have at the maybe at a moment there is a transition between eras when, when that's kind of flipped by and Klopp's Liverpool, Pep's Man City, maybe Tuchel's PSG. It might be that in five, 10 years time, we're actually saying, well, look, actually that was a, that was as strong an, an era at the elite level that we, we're not in a position to nostalgicize about 10 years ago because we, we don't quite have the, the full context of that closed era in the way that we do about say the 1990s we know we know we can assess them much more clearly because they are their after after effects have finished but isn't aren't we saying that the rules of nostalgia dictate that what you just said means that in 2013 we were harking back to 2007 and yep. i appreciate the generational difference might mean you're harking back to the 70s or 80s or 90s or even before depending on your age but but the, the rules of nostalgia surely dictate that it's not just a natural ebb and flow or it gives rise to an ebb and flow. But the, the reason behind it is that it is nostalgia. It is the rose tinted spectacle. So we're looking from now back to 2013 and before and a little period before. But in 2013, were we nostalgicizing, which is a word that Rory, you coined on a previous podcast, which we're going to use heavily. Over the I, think that, I think that's just a in word. The same way. That's just nostalgicizing is just a word. It might be a word because you've said it so. No. I don't think it's actually in any dictionary. It's just a normal word. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, you know, 
when you when you're a kid watching football as we all did and it, it was seemingly about the individuals that stood out it wasn't the the, the teams that i remember it's watching individual players is, is it the, is it the same true now for for kids watching football in 2020 is it harder for individuals to stand out because football has completely become a team game it's about the team tactics winning out so are kids watching, say, Mo Salah or Kevin De Bruyne, you know, Wayne Rooney, are they still picking out individuals as we did maybe when we watched football 70s, 80s, 90s? Is it still going to be the same? Because I think football has changed enormously. It has, clearly, from the 70s to today. It is much more of a team game. We all have to operate together to get results. It's the high press. Everyone high presses. We don't have kind of nine defenders and, and one great attacker that's going to win the game for us. So kind of the dynamics of football have changed. I just wonder whether these individuals now, and it takes probably even more talent to be a, a Mo Salah and to stand out when the game is so team-based now. I think the change that's happened is that for a long time, tactics were, were basically designed as a framework to get the best out of your most talented players. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Whereas now, I think tactics are designed as a framework to subjugate the most talented players of the opposition and to make to ensure that the, the the talents of your most talented players feed into the overall structure of a team. I was at the Man United Leeds game the other day, and which obviously Man United won 6-2. And it was really interesting to see United, Man United very clearly set up to play Leeds by being Leeds. And it was all pouring forward and running really fast and endless, relentless attacking. And they won 6-2 basically because their players are better. They, they played like leads, but with more talented players. So they, the, the, the statistics were skewed a little bit towards the end because United had a flurry of about four, four chances after the 80th minute. They, and it suddenly looked like United had had, I think they ended up with like 28 shots to Leeds' 19 or something. And the, but the team, the team had a tactical plan. It wasn't, we're going to get the best out of Bruno well, Fernandes. How can we play to get him to excel? It's the well, team but the to bid, get everything together. The bigger contrast was, was or the, 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 more, the more interesting thing was Leeds. Leeds are very obviously more than the sum of their parts. They are, and that leads are an advert for the power of the modern tactic. Whereas United aren't. United are just 11 really good players on a football pitch. And sometimes against the right opposition, in the right mood, in the right weather, you know, in the right circumstances, they will, they will shine because they're really, they're really, really good footballers. Leads are much more kind of indicative of where the modern game is, which is you have several extremely good players. Rodrigo Moreno is a brilliant footballer. And I think, you know, Rafinha is fantastic, but basically they're, they're, they're players who have been put together by a coach because they dovetail nicely. They, they fit a system. The system gets the best out of all of them. They are there kind of to serve the system. That's maybe the bigger change. Leeds and teams like them, the players are all there to serve the system. But would a, would a kid all, watching Leeds be inspired by Rafinha and Rodrigo? Again, do you see what I mean about watching an individual and thinking, yeah. Leeds are my team. Would they see that individual in the same way that we maybe saw yeah, individuals think, when we were watching as a kid? Yes, I think they would, because I think that's your your connection into the game as a kid is always with the individual and kind of imagining that you could do that stuff. It's much harder to watch the game as a nine-year-old and be like, do you know what? I bet I could, I bet I could organize that low block. I bet I just, <laughs> I bet somebody I'd, out there. I'm telling you. I bet I, that kid who dressed up as Sven Joran Eriksson, the, um, <laughs> if you don't remember that, that is quite a niche reference. Um, I think before tactics were, were there to serve the individual now it feels a lot more like the individuals are there to serve the system. And the idea is that if you have the right individuals doing the right things with enough talent, the system will dominate and the system will win games. That's how 
people like Guardiola, people like Bielsa, people like Klopp see football. Mm -hmm. They do not believe that their job is to get the best out of individual players. I think the problem with Man United to an extent is that they're caught a little bit in between those two eras, that they have a team that is basically needs a framework to to get the best out of the individuals, but they're trying to play football where the individuals are there to serve the system. But I still think that despite that, that as kids, you watch individuals more than more than teams. And even to an extent as adults, you, if you look at kind of the way that, that signing superstars can help teams win fans, particularly in new markets, but I think across the world, I think it applies just as much in Europe, really. It suggests that we, we are still obsessed with individuals. We connect more with individuals than we do with teams other than through our own kind of tribal allegiances that come in a different way. Well, that's really good for the pundit because if fans are watching individuals and the ball, they're not seeing what really the whole, the, the bigger picture, the bigger story. So actually, hopefully that will continue that kids grow into to adults watching individuals and watching the ball because then we can tell them everything else that's going on around the, the individuals and the ball, which is, yeah, carry on, carry on, people, watching individuals. You're helping me enormously. Is this not a cyclical thing, though? What's dictating this shift if there, if there has been a shift? Is it because there, there isn't the, the individual at the moment in which a coach can rely upon to focus their tactics around that person? Or has the have the elite coaches decided that that is no longer the way to go about it and and the the Jurgen Klopp approach is is the way to go because we do still have a situation where we have emerging players who are already being held up as potentially greats of their generation in their position Erling Haaland at at Borussia Dortmund when he's when he's fit again whoever the coach at Dortmund is will surely focus their approach on getting the ball to him inside the penalty area as often as possible and he can bludgeon you towards victory and and however collectively brilliant Bayern Munich are Robert Lewandowski is still the player that they rely on hugely for for volume of goals so there are still individuals they're not just maybe dictating the game in the way that that Ronaldo and Messi have done because they are you know, once in a generation sort of players. You can't can't rely and, and you need to give those players an opportunity to emerge. And they're just currently, as as we discussed very recently when we were talking about Jao Felix, that although he might be a throwback to the old school number 10 style of doing things, that at the moment that there isn't that emerging creative ta talented player who can can dictate a game on their own. So have co have coaches chosen to, to revert to a, a team collective approach or has it been thrust upon them? Yeah, I think the individuals have been kind of assumed into the into the team outlook. That That is understandable. It is a team game and I'm, I'm surprised it's taken that long to get to that point. But for, for individuals to actually still stand out when maybe 80% of their work has to be done for the team's benefit on and off the ball and yet you can still get Lewandowski scoring the volume of goals. It's not as if he just stands in the penalty area saying, I'm going to wait here until the ball arrives at my feet and I'll score goals. That's maybe what he'd have got away with in the 70s or 80s. It would never happen today. For the very top teams, you've got to play a role when we don't have the ball as well. So I think there's probably even more to be said for individuals that we're maybe going to be talking about in 20 years' time because they've had to play their part in the team being successful and yet they still stand out as individuals it's probably even more impressive that they can do that it's it's interesting though that i think that's right that that it's harder for 
football isn't quite as indulgent of individuals anymore. And the treatment of Mesut Ozil is, is quite a good example of that, although it's not that's not purely a footballing thing. But the, the hostility to Ozil from outside Arsenal, take the inside Arsenal and the Arsenal fans out of it, the hostility to Ozil, the sense that he doesn't work hard enough for the team. I'm not sure that that was ever levelled at like Maradona and not that Ozil's of that level, or a player more, someone like Pablo Aymar, who's more of that sort of the Ozil level, like a world-class player. There was no kind of, even with a coach like Benitez, who demanded everyone kind of subjugate themselves to the system, there was no kind of like, well, Pablo Aymar's not tracking back enough, he's not picking up his man at corners, partly because Pablo Aymar was about three feet tall. But the um, football now doesn't, demands that all players can be part of a system. And I think that's actually a really significant change. So Steve picks out Lewandowski and Haaland, who are two of the kind of standout players, probably just about of different generations, but they're both pure number nines. They've both been been raised in a, in a world where, in that like that post-Drogba world where number nines play on their own. There's no kind of, you don't, you're not, it's not like a two, it's not your control anymore. It's, it's Drogba, Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, and then Drogba transformed it so that you just had one striker. Lewandowski and Haaland are both of the generation that, that understood that. They are the sorts of players you can fit easily into a system because football has not yet developed, kind of not, not that it would want to develop, but football has not yet moved beyond the idea of having a striker who scores loads of goals. That's still, that's still kind of a key part of any system, whatever your approach is. Um, more, more difficult, I think, is for players who play in positions that have been traditionally a little bit more mercurial, a little bit more um, independent, a little bit less easily kind of placed in a system. And they, they are effectively number 10s and winners who play on the correct side. That you know, inverted winners fit really easily into the into that four three three system, but I think if you're a, if you're an out and out kind of dribbly winner who likes to kind of you know beat a man and then and then get a cross in, there's not that much scope for you anymore. And ditto number tens. And I think one of one of the things that really interested me with, with the with the kind of post Maradona discourse was that obviously if you had a player of the talent of Maradona, any academy modern academy in the world would be delighted by that because he Maradona is one of the most naturally gifted footballers who has ever existed no question about that but I don't think if Maradona came through now even in Argentina that he would still be married the Maradona that we saw I think he would end up being a different type of player I don't know if football can create players like that anymore and that's that's not a flaw in Maradona mm -hmm. it's a flaw in football and is that not the crux of this entire conversation when it comes to nostalgia regarding players is you simply cannot compare from one generation to the next because however talented an individual might be you can only shine as much as the system in which you have not only been bought through but that the club that you end up playing for deploys so you you can't say well yeah we could we could take Maradona from the 1980s, put him in a time machine, bring him to now, and he would have the same impact because not only is there no way of proving it, but it's, it's highly improbable because what was happening with football in the 1980s that enabled Maradona to become the player that, that he did wouldn't work un under the way that, we are, that the game is currently being played. It's not to say that that won't come back around. In fact, it almost certainly, certainly will because, you know, if, if the, the history of football has, has taught us anything, it's that ideas are, are recycled and, and reused. No, no idea is particularly brand new, is it? It's just something that's been supplanted from a, a previous era, a previous generation and given a bit of a tweak.
But that, that, is that not the very essence of nostalgia, harking back to something from a time gone by which is no longer with us? And, if, and that, if that's going to be the essence of the, that particular part of this conversation, then, then, then Maradona works. Because if Maradona, if the equal, not in terms of ability, but in terms of how they uh, play their role in the team is Mesut Ozil, then, then you are going to be harking back to a time when Mesut Ozil would have been successful. I mean, that's, that's the, very, the very definition of it. Yeah, and exactly. Nostalgia is fine. Nostalgia is great. You, why not remember the moments from, the, from football in the past that gave you great joy and, and pick out the individuals who contributed most towards that? But it, it, it's when it comes to comparing those players from different eras where I just think the, the argument, the discussion loses all structure and all credibility because... You know, it's not quite impossible, but it's not really very realistic. I think the one thing that we don't do, we always talk a lot about kind of, you know, would Messi cope with the treatment that Maradona got in the 1986 World Cup? And that's used as a stick with which to beat Messi. But there's two problems with that. One is, one is that if Messi had grown up like Mar Maradona did with the same level of talent in the same context, of course he'd have been able to cope because he'd have been used to it. In the same way, we never kind of have the, the converse conversation, which is would Maradona have been able to cope with the tactical discipline required of someone with that level of talent by any team now? And probably, yeah, but it would have it would have maybe inhibited him a little bit. And the other thing I think that's really crucial is that we we forget the kind of base level of, of ability that all players now have, that in the 70s and 80s, not that the players were bad, but they, they weren't as fit. They you, you see midfielders, this, this sounds really stupid, but you see midfielders now doing, like fairly, fairly average midfielders doing tricks on the ball that would have been like jaw-dropping in the 1960s. Like th things that we don't even, and not to get into like Tekka's culture, but like things that we don't even really notice midfielders doing. That Like when was the last time you, you kind of, you were a dog at a Cruyff turn? Does everyone can do a Cruyff turn now? But when Cruyff did it, it was, in, it was so rare that they named it after him. You say, you know you say I mean? everyone, but I, I, yeah, I think of all the, tr yeah, I didn't have a trick. I never had from playing from 10 years old, but the Cruyff turn is one that everybody really should be able to do apart from maybe you. <laughs> That's Scott McTominay first touch in his second goal in that yeah, match yeah. that you referenced earlier on. That's Scott McTominay. Yeah, and that, like, that's not to say that all players in the past were rubbish, because obviously they weren't, but they were all products of their contexts and their cultures. And as much as it's a really obvious point to say, well, you can't actually compare players across eras, I think part, part of the reason that it's such a flawed conversation is that we don't, we kind of, we apply the context, but only one way. We never apply the context both ways and we never apply them to average players. So do you know, if Scott, if Scott McTominay had played in the 1960s, this Scott McTominay, he would probably have been the best player in the world. Well, if you could take Scott McTominay and, now. and transport him, if Bill and Ted came to collect him and yep. took, him, took him back to the 1960s. Yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely right. There's a, there, the, there's a film script in that, Steve, I think. <laughs> let's go for it. Let's pitch really? it. Yeah. That would give Chinch something to do in that let's sort of Let's take downtime Jamie Pollock back Christmas to the 60s and, and just leave him there. <laughs> well, let's not stretch the point too far, Chinch. It's still an own, it's still an own goal in any, any era, whenever Jamie Pollock does that. The, the Cruyff turn is a really interesting one. Google Cruyff turn and see him doing it and it happens in slow motion. Yeah. If you watch it from when, you know, I, I can't remember whether it's the video of the first time he, he executed that move, but you cannot believe the defender has fallen for it. It happens so gradually by comparison to the speed with which we are used to football and skills being deployed within football now that it seems improbable to our eyes that 
he would be able to do that and fool the defenders so comprehensively doing it at that speed. But which, but again, you just have to review that within the era in which it happened. It, it was extraordinary then. It would not be extraordinary now. The, the, there is a comparison here that I always think of that, that I've never successfully made eloquently, but I might have another go. So the Beatles, we would all agree, are a better band than Oasis. Yeah. That fact, yeah. Would you say yeah. music, music history probably goes along with that? Oasis yeah. wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the Beatles at the very least. Exactly. Yes. So, but in, in terms of... We're not, saying, we're not saying Paul McCartney's Noel Gallagher's dad, are we? You no. actually mean musically they wouldn't have musically. existed. They wouldn't have had the inspiration and taken all their lyrics and music. Sorry, but, they might uh, have existed, but their, their music would have been... Complete rubbish. Skiffle. <laughs> the the um, oh, skiffle again. The, so, in terms of like sound quality and production values, though, Oasis is far better than the Beatles. Yes. Unless you're nostalgic for the kind of quality of the recording on those, you know, well, this, there's a risk track mixes that they had in the sixties. There's a risk that this now gets into kind of vinyl purism and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but in terms of kind of like the standard of, I don't know, like the guitars and the drum kits and the technology and all that stuff that went into making Oasis's music, the mixing, all of that, Oasis's is work is, be is better than the Beatles from a, like a technical sound point. You see, now you're onto musicology and this is, this is part, of my, uh, part of my degree. And to be honest with you, well, it wasn't articulated by me very well back then. So uh, you're doing better than I did. I get a sense that Hugh is climbing upon his high horn. <laughs> <laughs> At least not on a soapbox. So that really matters. What is the work? I mean, is the work the actual, oh, no, no, the thought no. of the composer? Is it that the has been set piece menu. recording? See you next year. Is it the recreation of that recording aesthetically in each and every version that it is? So, but you're, but as Hugh quite rightly says, Oasis wouldn't have existed without the Beatles. So the Beatles kind of, that all that technical stuff doesn't really matter because the, the, the music, the actual music, the Beatles obviously is far superior. And I think there's a parallel with football that the if you look at the kind of the production values of football, the fitness, the nutrition, the, the kind of base level skill, all that stuff, it is very clearly obviously superior now to how it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Opta have stats for this that a, I think according to Opta, in terms of base performance level, a team that finished in the top four in the early 2000s would now be mid-table in the Premier League. Like so are, we, Premier... are we saying we're getting to some kind of football perfection where football is being solved? No, and if, because if that is it, the case, if that is the case, the individual is going to get lost in the team, isn't it? It's not. It's not. We're not reaching perfection, but the game moves on just as music moves on. The one thing that that remains true is is partly that the, that talent is what defines everything. So, you, the talent of the Beatles more than makes up for the fact that Oasis had better production values. The talent of George Best or Maradona makes up for the fact that that players are. Burnley now are far fitter than either of them could ever have dreamed of being. And so you, you, it might be that if Burnley now played Manchester United in 1968, Burnley would win. But that doesn't mean that this Burnley are a more historically significant team than Manchester United 68, because Manchester United 68 got there first and had to do all the stuff they did. And I know for a fact that Phil Bardsley wakes up every morning, punches the air saying, I'm fitter than George Best. Take exactly. that. Yeah. So it keeps him going. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the danger of nostalgia or the, the merit of nostalgia is that it remembers that talent comes first, that the ability level is what's important. But the danger is that it kind of it misses the fact that the game has moved on and the game as a whole is better. It's, it is in 
for any kind in in all the boring ways, the game is much better. The talent of the t- of teams of the past is still what matters most, as they they were there first and their talent shone brightest. And none of this would have happened without them. But on the on a base level, everything we see now is better than than it was thirty years ago in terms of fitness, in terms of technical level, in terms of coaching. All that stuff is so much higher now that I think at times we we do the modern game a disservice by forgetting all of that. I was just going to say, yeah, it would be to football's great detriment if it hadn't learnt the lessons from the past and hadn't progressed. Which leads us rather nicely to episode two of our Christmas uh, two-parter. We're going to talk a little bit more in the wider context, not just about the players. We're going to talk about those feelings, the aesthetic level of football. Did it look different? Was it better? Did genuinely Manchester City only have two pairs of medium shorts? These are the things that we yes, shall talk we about yes, we did. in our second episode. Uh, so that's to come uh, next week. Now, there's no soccer story today owing to the fact that we've always relied on the structure of a two-parter allowing us to prepare a little less content. So um, next week, we will, though, have a little something for you. Again, little, uh, but no less worth waiting for. Uh, so in the meantime, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Seasons Greetings to you all. That is a catch-all, multi-denominational, non-offensive way of saying everybody have a nice few days. Chinch, you, you described me as a Luddite last week for not jumping immediately on board with your, was it PPDA, statistical yeah, I, analysis? I described you as a, a Luddite on air. What I said you know, to the other guys when you weren't around was a, a lot worse. But we, yeah, we'll, we'll start with Luddite and go from there. Just the, the very next game that I, I commentated on did demonstrate perhaps a slight issue regarding the over-reliance on analytics. As you know, in these unusual times, we've been doing an awful lot more football commentary, all sports commentary off tube, which because of logistics and, and travel restrictions, which makes the hardest job in broadcasting a little bit harder. But Can you explain off tube to the, to the layman? Well, rather than being in person at a venue, you are, you are watching the feed of the game as you would receive at home on a, on a screen in a studio somewhere or occasionally even in my attic. <laughs> and, and you were relying on the pitches being sent by the host broadcaster. So I did a German game. First game I did after you accused me of being a Luddite. And the team news came down from the, the, from the host broadcaster, from the, from the official organisations. And you know, with that, that's what we went with. We built our graphics uh, around it. And I built my, my team news around it. And it became apparent in the very first minute of the game when Stuttgart's number 20 was on the ball. Well, Stuttgart's number 20 was not on the team sheets that we had received, not even right before kickoff. So there was a bit of a mad scramble between me and the producer trying to find out not only what had happened, but who he had replaced. Because when you're relying on what you can see on the screen, it's very difficult to, to see the entire layout of the pitch to, to determine which player has clearly been injured at the very last minute and been, been replaced. We were through lots of searching behind the scenes, able to, to work out that Aurel Mengala, who had been expected to start, wasn't on the field, and he had been replaced by number 20, Philip Forster. Now, this was all well and good once we got our heads around what had happened, until 10 minutes into the game when, when the Bundesliga provides you with not only the lineups and the little graphic in the top left of the screen, but those graphics then morph into the average positions. of the Nice, on sweet. The very useful, gives you a, an idea of the, the early tactical impl- implications of the game. 
The only problem was Stuttgart's number 23, Oral Mangala, was part of the average position graphic on the screen, even though he was not involved in the game, had not touched the ball, and had certainly not been involved in running around the pitch for the first 10 minutes. So it did make me start wondering just how heavily we should rely on the analytics. Which well, you, um, come on, come on. No, no that's, not, that's not analytics. That, that's someone clearly not changing the numbers over. That, that's, that's nothing to do. The analytics, absolutely, we use it all the time. It's, of course it tells us, but if you haven't got the right players on the graphic... That isn't the fault of the of the um, of the the analytic that you're looking at. It's of the person putting the numbers in, Stephen. But, but surely on. they're but surely they're using some kind of way of tracking Orel Mangala's contribution to the game. And the fact that he's currently sat in the dressing room receiving treatment, yeah, would suggest that his average position should have been somewhere underneath well, the stand. Clearly, he has a, an influence. <laughs> he has an influence on the team, even when he's not playing. That they thought we're going to have to stick him on the ground. But again, presumably that 23 was number 20. They're just. But no, that, that's the mistake of the people putting the numbers in. That's not the mistake of the model that you're looking to, to apply to the game, it's, is it? Come on, Steve, you know you're, you know you're I would say partly wrong, but you, you, you are wholly wrong. What Stephen is doing here is, is blaming the robots he is, for what he is, is very isn't much it? the yeah. human It's like blaming yeah. the referees for the laws. <laughs> oh, let's have a go at someone who's put the wrong number in. Oh, it means the model's completely wrong. I think you've shot yourself in the foot there, Stephen. Goodbye. It, this also feels uh, rather like not only the ending to one episode, but a perfect preamble to another episode. I think that's that's quite meta, but it is the, you know, it's the Christmas New Year period, so basically nobody will be listening to either of these things, so it's we fine. Do, we do very well over Christmas and New Year, Rory. Is it just we keep going? Yeah, basically, yeah. There's not enough podcasts out there for people to fill their podcast schedule with, so that's where we step in. With that in mind, this is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over feed. I'm Keith Ellis.